So we are in uh, Mark, in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you've got your Bibles there, it's in Mark chapter 14. We're going to read from verse 32 to 42. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. This is what it says. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It is a few weeks out to Easter, as Ben said, and it's just good to make a moment, uh, make the most of this moment to reflect on what the significant event is of Easter. So we're starting that this morning. We'll be doing that over the next few weeks into Easter. It is God who reveals himself to us. He does it through his word, but he also does it through his Holy Spirit. So we're going to pray now that God would reveal himself to us so we can understand him better. Please pray with me. Dear Father God, just thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to meet together, to celebrate uh, you and your church, but to also to draw near to you through your word. Lord, as we dig into the uh, story here, we do pray that you would open our hearts so we can know you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you look for in a leader? If you had to put your hands in a, if you, if you had to put your life in the hands of someone else, what sort of person would that have to be? What would give you confidence enough to go, yep, I'm signing up my whole life to follow you, whatever you say? What sort of leader would they have to be? Let me give you a few examples of leaders in the past that are, well, you'd be the judge. <laughs> They've done a good job. There's a story about a Roman emperor, uh, records of a Roman emperor when the uh, Roman army was just conquering everything. This is 100 BC. There was a, a general called Quintus Capio. He was a commander of an army. And when he was on the battlefield, he had this massive army behind him. His commander over him decided the enemy we're going to fight is too great for us. How about I try and negotiate a deal? So while the overseeing commander went to negotiate the deal, young Quintus said, no, no, now's the time to strike. Now's the time to strike. Went in and in a single day they were smashed. 80,000 infantry and 40,000 cavalry got done over. In fact, the Romans were so unimpressed because Quintin escaped. He didn't even go onto the battlefield. He, is, he went away, Quintus, uh, got back to Rome. They sacked him. <laughs> You're not good at this job, right? You're sacked and we're going to exile you out of Rome. He actually left with a smile on his face. 
because it was revealed that the war treasury was down 15,000 talents of gold missing. He'd walked away with 25 grand in his pocket, uh, 25 million in his pocket being kicked out of Rome. Would you follow someone like that, a leader like that? What about, as time goes on, surely our leaders have got better. There's a story about uh, a, a, a British commander in World War I, Douglas Haig, in 1916, facing the Germans. He again had lots of men under his control. This uh, Douglas was a bit sceptical about the whole machine gun thing. It was a bit of a new thing. Surely it's overrated. In one single day, he sent 20,000 of his men out of the trenches, over the top, to be shot down dead in a single day. But no, Douglas kept his job. Uh, in the following year, he went into battle, and in that battle, 275,000 men died under his command. Would you follow him? He never, as far as I know, he never jumped out of one trench and ran towards one machine gun. He uh, survived the war and many wars. Would you follow him? But there's, it doesn't have to be life and death and battle things either. It's things like, you know, in our pressures of life today, when we hear that uh, the Reserve Bank that keep building up interest rates, it come out that Philip Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank, uh, when he had to borrow money to buy a home, he got half-price interest. It's like, you're putting up our interest, but you've never even paid full interest in your life. How is that fair? How do we, do we trust you? There's all these questions about trust in our leaders. We want to know, are they in the trenches with us, be, beside us? If they know what we're going through. Are they calling us to do something that they're not prepared to do? We're very sceptical about our leaders, and so we should. Because if you're being asked to sign up with your whole life, that's a big ask, it's a big call. But as we talk about Christianity and following a Messiah, a Lord called Jesus, what are you hoping for out of Jesus? Is he someone you can follow and trust and commit your life to? Is he, does he measure up for you? Because when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about religion, we're not talking about a philosophy, we're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, who physically walked. We're talking about a historical event that he came down to earth to save people. But are what we're seeing, is it enough to trust him? There's some interesting things that were going on in the story we just had read for us, just before Jesus got arrested, got beaten and put on the cross. And there's some things going on that Jesus is saying that starts to make you think, is, is he for real? Like, is he this brave, bold leader, or is he starting to get cold feet? Let's dig a bit deeper. Let me show you. Uh, it's from Mark, chapter 14, uh, as Ben explained. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they've, Jesus has just been with his disciples. They've had what we know as the Last Supper. Uh, wash their feet. He's told them he's going to be arrested and killed. Don't worry, he's going to rise again. But then they go, so it's night time, after dinner, uh, go to this garden. And Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. But then he takes Peter, James and John, his closer disciples, with him, uh, just a bit further. But he began to be deeply distressed and troubled at that point. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. He goes a little far, further, farther. He fell to the ground and prayed 
that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He prays, we've got his prayer. Abba, Father, he says, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will. That's his prayer. It sort of indicates that maybe Jesus is not as strong as we thought, that he's not going in there brave and bring it on, but he's actually, is he getting cold feet? And we need to feel the weight of what uh, the words that Mark uses to describe this particular moment when he says, and because Mark writes this in Greek and it's been translated to English and, you know, some words, they can be interchangeable. So when he says things like, uh, that Jesus began to be distressed and troubled and overwhelmed. They're words that bring on uh, a sudden appearance of something, to be astonished at something, to be shocked at something. There's something suddenly come on him to be overwhelming him. And to say sorrow to the point of death, this word sorrow is also sometimes translated to be grieved. I'm so grieved to the point of death. They're heavy words. And to understand what they're talking about, the depth of what's going on, we kind of need, how do we use these words today? I remember seeing an interview with a lady on TV. It was a mum, and she'd just lost her child. I think it was a car accident. It was sudden, it was quick, it was unexpected. And in the interview, she said, my life is not worth continuing. I just want to die. What would bring a person to say something like that? It's their deep loss, loss in her life. She says, I can't go on. I don't want to be here. I'm overcome by grief, is what she's talking about. And when you're overcome, it just drowns everything out. Just drowning in my grief. This seems to be what Jesus is saying. In this moment, it's just too much. So for Jesus, something has happened here. Something has happened to bring on this. This astonishment, overwhelmed, to be grieved. Because as he says this, he falls to the ground and he even says, Father, if it's possible, take this from me. Let the hour pass. It's like, is he willingly pushing into this or not? It's almost brave enough to say that other people have died better than Jesus. Other people have died braver deaths than Jesus. Uh, about in about 150 AD, there's a bishop called Polycarp. And he, follower of Jesus, uh, Rome hated Christians at that time, and they strung him up. He was the bishop of the church, the leader of the church. And they tied him up with around a pole with wood all around the bottom everybody knew what was going to happen he was going to get burnt but they said to him polycarp this is your moment deny jesus and we will we will save you we'll let you walk and his reply was 86 years have i served him and he has done me no wrong <laughs> whoa let's give him another chance maybe he's not thinking polycarp if you deny Jesus now, we've got the guy sitting at the bottom of your fire heap with his matches. If you deny him now, we will let you walk. And then he says to the Roman leader, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a while it is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. 
It's like Polycarp saying, don't feel sorry for me, I feel sorry for you. You should know what's coming to you. This is nothing. It's like, that's a brave death, isn't it? That's a good death. From Polycarp's death, the church boomed because other people going, man, there's something about this Christian faith, something about following Jesus that I want to be a part of if it changes my life that much, that radically. That's a, what you might say, that's dying well. But for Jesus, Jesus is not saying anything like that. He's actually saying the opposite. Father, is there anything you can do to take this cup from me? Is it getting cold feet? See, what's happened in these verses? Is Jesus worried about the physical pain? Because none of us like pain, particularly if he knows he's going to get beaten and flogged and nailed to a cross. Nobody wants that. But is that his biggest concern? Or is it that he knows, and he's been telling everybody all up to this point, he will be the one that makes the sacrifice. He will be the one that dies for the sins of the world. Is it dying for the sins of the world? His problem which kind of makes you think, what was his thought process? While he's in heaven with the Father God, now talking about this plan to rescue humanity, sounded good at the time, but Jesus says, oh, now I'm actually here. Now I've met the disciples and I've just had the last supper with them. I washed their feet and one's walked out who's going to betray me. I actually don't feel that much compassion for these guys. I think this is a bad plan. Is he trying to back out that way? Or is he looking at the fine print? Do I really have to do this? Oh, there is something in the fine print. Father, everything is possible with you. That's a fine print. Is there a way I can escape out of this? Is Jesus worried about the physical death or dying for sin? And from where we're sitting, either way is not a good look for a leader, right? You're not going to put your trust in somebody who's balking at marching in front of you to take the bullet. What's going on? We actually get a bit of insight into what Jesus is thinking from some of the words he uses. When he says particularly this line, take this cup from me. What's he talking about here? This cup. They've finished with the Lord's Supper, they've done that, but what is the cup he is talking about? This is where we need to have a bit of background because in the Old Testament you had Israel as a nation with the centre of um, Israel, God's people was Jerusalem and in that all the prophets came and tried to steer the Israelites, steer God's people back to God and the prophets used to use this word, you turn back to God or you will take the cup of wrath from God. God will cast down judgment on you, you'll mucking God around, they were taking other idols, taking other gods. At one point, they were even sacrificing their children to other gods. It's like, what are you doing? God is going to come. He will judge you and you will drink the cup of his judgment. The cup of his judgment. Let me give you a few, there's a few chapters in Isaiah that goes deep into this and we want to just dig into this a little bit this morning. This is the prophet Isaiah talking to Israel, God's people, uh, specifically to Jerusalem, because that's the heart of the nation. And this is what he says. Awake, awake. This is Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, rise up to Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who drained it to the dregs, to its dregs. The goblet that makes people stagger. It's not a cup you can just have a little bit of. It's a cup they drunk it all, the judgment of God. It goes on and it talks about Israel as a mother, because it's very relational, a uh, mother. And as parents have kids uh, in, in that 
those ancient days, you have kids, not just have a big family, but your kids were your support network. So as you got aged or as life got hard for you, your kids were there to support you as a family unit. And this is what he brings out. He says, among all the children she bore, there were none to guide her. Among all the children she read, there was none to take her by the hand. It's like nobody can save you from this judgment. Nobody's going to help you. He goes on, these double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. And this is, in the ancient world, this is, destruction is the worst thing ever, right? Even today. We don't want destruction, but the idea of famine and sword are out of our control. The, the drought comes for years and years. You run out of water. Your animals don't have water. So you've got no animals, your struggle, people die in famine. And the sword enemy comes in and cuts you up there are things you can't get help for who can comfort you no one who can console you your children have fainted they lie at every street corner like an antelope caught in a net they are filled with the wrath of the lord with the rebuke of your god it's just a little window into what does this cup look like this judgment of god they've done the wrong thing and they deserve judgment Who's going to pay for it? They are. They're going to drink the cup and it's going to be horrific. It's going to be destruction and ruin. It's going to be the end of them. They can't face up to the judgment of God. This is a bad picture, isn't it? To take the cup, to take the cup of God's judgment. But the chapter ends from Isaiah with these few verses, uh, this last verse. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, which you will never drink again. Whoa, this cup is so bad. But where's the cup going to go? Who's going to take the cup? How is the cup going to be taken? What's going to happen with the cup? God's judgment to punish wrong can't be just, uh, don't worry about it. Somebody has to drink the cup. Who and how? The interesting thing in uh, Isaiah, he goes on to talk about this one who's going to take the cup, this suffering servant, this king, God's king, will do it. And Jesus knows that this is him. He explains several times to his disciples and others, this is why I have come, to save the sins of the world. He knows he's come into the world to drink this cup. He knows he's come to be the sacrifice. He's been saying to people all along, I will be arrested, I'll be mocked and ridiculed, I'll be killed. He says, I'll do it for the sins of the world, for you. Jesus knows it's him, but he gets to this point and he's astonished, he's overwhelmed. It's like, what's going on here? What is going on for Jesus? Most theologians agree it's something like this. Follow this story a little bit. It's like if you've been presented food. The cup is a helpful image, right? It's full of stuff that you've got to drink. But what if the cup was a good thing? What if the cup was something really nice? That is actually, we could talk about something really nice, like a plate of food. And I could tell you how good the food is. You've got to go to the Glen Hotel, try out their pork ribs, Tuesday night, 30% off, and when they bring the plate out, it's not just this big, it's a plate that's this big. 
It's so good. And when they bring it before you, everybody else is looking. What have you got? It's got this barbecue sauce on it that's awesome. It's so nice and tender. The smell is to die for. It's amazing. The best I can do for you is to explain it, and the best you can do is to use your imagination. How good is this? It sounds really good. Maybe I want it. Tuesday night, 30% off. Did I say that before? Tuesday night, 30, ribs night at the Glen Hotel. The best we can do is imagine it. We're there. But one day you go there. You go to the Glen Hotel. You sit down. You order the ribs and you see it coming. The waiter comes out. They can't carry two plates. One plate's too big. They sit it down in front of you. And then you can, you can actually smell it because it's sitting in front of you. You can look at it and see how tender it is. Before you even take a bite, all of a sudden it's become real. Ross is not just talking this up. This is as good as what Ross said. This is great. Before you even have a taste, this moment has become real for you. Then you taste it and be awesome. Thank me later. But what if, what if it's bad? What if the cup is really bad? That it's a cup of destruction. It's a cup of death. It's a cup that's going to crush you. All we can do is use our imagination. Even as we read Isaiah's words, we're using our imagination. How bad could this really be? We can only imagine it. But for Jesus, he's now in the garden. It's night time. He's about to be arrested. Nine o'clock the next morning, he'll be nailed to a cross. By three o'clock tomorrow afternoon, he'll, he'll be dead. He is now not just reading Isaiah going, oh, let me imagine what this wrath is going to be. Let me imagine what this cup is going to be like. He's now sitting at the table. He's now confronted by the cup. He can see it. He can smell it. It's now right before him. Even though he's been talking, he's known this cup is going to come. He's now sitting at the table. He's just about to drink the cup. And he says, this is overwhelming. I'm so grieved. I just want to die. Well, is there any other way, any other way we can take this cup from me? Because now he's on the edge and he's just about to sip it. Isaiah fills out a little bit more of a picture on what Jesus can actually see before he goes into tomorrow. It says Isaiah 53, and it talks about this suffering servant, the one that's going to take the cup and drink it. It describes him as saying, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him, uh, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed for our iniquities. That means our sin. The punishment that he brought us, uh, the punishment that he brought us, sorry, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. It's like, we don't have the cup anymore. He is taking the cup the punishment for our sin. It goes on, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering, offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, 
he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And his knowledge, uh, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities, their sin. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. He is at the top, he is the king, the Lord, the Saviour. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This means those alive, those in heaven, those who are dead and buried. Everybody will see Jesus, Lord. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This affirms Jesus is not, not, not like any other leader. He is truly Lord. He's done what no other leader could do. He saved his people from sin and that punishment. What does that mean for us? I want to pick out 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. This is what Peter says, the difference the cross makes, what Jesus did. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is not talking about Israel in the Old Testament anymore. This is talking about to the church, to people like us, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvellous, his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It changes us. But notice what this does for us. Individually, we need to own what Jesus did for us. Each of us are a sinner. Each of us deserve to drink the cup of God's judgment. Each of us don't deserve to live through that. Jesus died for me. I need to repent from my sin. I need to fall at Jesus, worship him as Lord, but I need to repent from my sin and to take up that new life. We do that as individuals. But notice the language here. It's a little bit what we talked about in the membership stuff. He's talking to a bunch of Christians who are gathered because that's what Christians do. They gather. And he says, you are not the same anymore. You're a royal priesthood. You're a people. You're a holy name. You have a new citizenship. You're a part of a new body. So what Jesus has done for us is not only an individual thing, it is that, but it's a church thing. It's an us thing. This is why we're trying to talk about membership a bit more. This is why we're trying to say, get involved with church in the life of church. Because Jesus changes us. The church is something new that didn't exist before the cross. Since the cross, the church is here for Christians to come, to belong, to be a part of, to be a part of the body. This is significant for us. This is illustrated in what we do in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do this in a few moments. For Christians, for believers, to believe in Jesus' body that's broken for us, Jesus' blood that's spilt for us, we will eat the bread and drink the juice. And on the one hand, this is a moment that's a very individual thing. I want you later to reflect on what that means for you. Have you repented from your sin? Have you said, no, I don't want that anymore? I want to cling to Jesus. That's an individual thing. But if you look through the New Testament, when it talks about the Lord's Supper, it's never written. Instructions are never written to individuals. It's written to churches. In fact, some churches were getting it really wrong in how they were doing it, the Lord's Supper, in fighting for it and drinking too much and not leaving some for others and things like that. So, no, no, no. It's actually 
the Lord's Supper that points us to Jesus and what he's done for us. It's an us thing that unifies us. We're one body under one spirit with one Lord. So we're going to do this in a few moments, take the Lord's Supper. And I want you to reflect on what it means for you. But we're going to do it together because it's an us thing that Jesus has given each up, everybody sitting beside you, that we do it together. It's the cross, it's what Jesus did that unites us and binds us and changes us. Let me pray first and I'll explain how it's going to work. Dear Father God, we just thank you. Thank you for this little picture into what Jesus was wrestling with. That he did what no other man could do, no other leader could do. What he was confronting was not just mere death, but to take on the sins of the world, to drink the cup of your wrath and judgment on sin. Lord, as we reflect on that, we want to thank you for the obedience that Jesus had to the Father. We want to thank Jesus, his compassion on those around him and the disciples, but even us today, that he didn't get cold feet, but he pushed through, even though that was going to crush him. Lord, as we sit here, we want to fall at your feet. We want to worship you and praise you because you are truly Lord. And we need to follow you with all our hearts, all our souls, all our lives. Lord, thank you for the grace that allows that. And we pray that you'd help us to leave this room as different people, to turn from our sin, to glorify you in all we do. Amen.